chapter 3, Psalm 3, and that is page 384 in the church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you or if you're just unfamiliar with your Bible. Again, let me welcome you, and for those of you that are new, my name is Joe Franzone, and I serve here as the pastor. We're happy that you're here with us this morning. So before we read that psalm, while you're turning there, if you have a question about what we said or sung or we read this morning, when our time together is through, I'll be happy to do my best to try to answer those questions for you. So we had a terrific statement at the end of the first service, so maybe you'll have one too. Okay, Psalm 3. A psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Selah. But you are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. To the Lord I cry aloud, and he answers me from his holy hill. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. Arise, O Lord. Deliver me, O my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's bow together and let's pray and to seek the help that we so desperately need from our God and our Father. Well, gracious God and Father, we are not here to merely put in our time and we are not here to hear the words of a mortal and sinful man. But we are here to revere you and to worship you, and to hear you, the living God, speak through your living word, the Bible. So may the scriptures be set forward this morning in such a way that we will receive them, that we will understand them, in order that we can make application of them and go out and bless the world in which we live. Father, for these things to take place, we remain 100% dependent on you. And so we ask for your help now, And we ask it in the one who suffered and died in our place, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, the third psalm is the first psalm in the book of Psalms that comes with a title. And the title was not added by Bible translators, but rather given by the author. And because of this, we can immediately get a proper context or set a proper context so that we can give a proper interpretation. And when we do this, what we're going to find out this morning in this psalm is this, that even the rich and the powerful and the famous have their difficulties. We're going to find out that even the best of parents can have the worst of children. We're going to find out that popularity is a very flimsy foundation to build a life on. And we're going to find out that even God's children, after genuinely confessing and repenting of their sin, while certainly God forgives, God may still choose to discipline them as he accomplishes his eternal purposes. And we will find out that the God of the Bible, the God of this psalm, is the God of the gospel. The God of the gospel. Psalm 3 says, One man is full of hope for those who have a heavy heart. It is filled with help for those with a stricken conscience because Psalm 3 is a psalm that bleeds gospel. That bleeds gospel. Okay, then, 
with our Bible open. I hope your Bible is open. I want you to look at verse, the title in verse 1, please. And if you have a worship folder in the back, there is some place where you may choose to take notes. The context that David was in. And so we're going to learn what that context was from the title that David gave us and from the verse, first verse of the psalm. And so what we immediately need to do as we see a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, we need to either refresh our minds about this story if we know it, but it's been a while, or we need to learn it this morning for the first time. And this is the historical account of what happened between David and Absalom. So King David had to leave his palace, his own palace, in a gigantic rush. The route that he left on to leave his kingdom was such that he crossed over the Kendron Brook and with only a few of his loyal followers, he goes into hiding from the wrath and from the wickedness of his son Absalom who wants his father's kingdom and he wants to rule over his father's people. And we've said last week, we've been saying week by week, when we come to the Psalms, the first person we need to look for is Jesus Christ. And when you do that, you might recall if you know a little bit of Eastern or Middle Eastern geography, and if you know a little bit of New Testament history, you'll know that the Lord Jesus Christ crossed over this exact same Kendron Brook that David did. It was by night also. It was the night that he was headed toward the Garden of Gethsemane. And he too had a small band of followers with him, albeit a sleepy band of followers. But Jesus was about to deal with wrath, a wrath of a different kind than David, because Jesus was preparing himself in prayer, asking for his father's strength so that he could fulfill his father's plan, die his people's death, sin. So the route that David was on in worry was the same route that Jesus Christ was on roughly a thousand years later in worry because the night troubled him, but also in obedience. Nevertheless, here David cries out in his prayer, verse one, O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? And so David is describing and he's dealing with disloyalty. He's dealing essentially with an insurrection. There's a rebellion. Okay. A rebellion would have been bad enough, right? So we understand how these things work. The, typically, the outlying kingdoms, they always had rebels there, and there are always people hiding secret animosities, holding grudges, and they would come eventually to the king's ear in a central help of power. And he wouldn't be surprised. I mean, no one in leadership would be surprised that people are complaining about things. That is part and parcel of what it means to lead. You need to be able to accept that. However, this disloyalty comes not from places far, far away and from people far away, but actually comes from people and a person very close to David. So this rebellion comes from David's own home and is led by David's own son Solomon, or Absalom, excuse me. Absalom, then, is a son of David, the leader of this rebellion, and he had some ways about him that the Bible wants us to know about. So you can read this on your own in 2 Samuel, somewhere around verses or chapter 14. You can read this maybe this afternoon. It won't take long. When you find out what you need to know about Absalom, this is what the Bible says, 2 Samuel 14, 25. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the soles of his foot, there was no blemish in him. In other words, Absalom would be the kind of guy that ladies who only think about looks would have loved. And Absalom would be the kind of guy, if you were having a party, you'd tell him, hey, the party starts at 10 when it actually starts at 7, right? Because you would not want to stand, at least I wouldn't want to stand next to Absalom. 
with all his fantasticness and stuff. So he was handsome, but he was also very cunning. Cunning because he begins to lay down the groundwork of his rebellion to his own father's kingdom. And again, 2 Samuel 15, Absalom stole the hearts of the people of Israel. So this becomes to me very, very interesting. Absalom then is very, very much a picture of worldliness and carnality because he always caters only to the people and Absalom never inquires of his God. Now I want you to understand this. This is the way of the Pharisee. This is the way of worldliness. They love the applause of the crowd. They will do just about anything to get it. They love money and power. It would apparently grant them. And they love to wrap all their sins up in respectability as they made themselves appear terrifically good by all the good things they did outwardly, but were very, very quick to point out the sins of others. I mean, that's what the Pharisees did when they walked this earth. And so Absalom, doing the exact same thing in his cunning ways, stole the people's heart by standing at the city gate. He would complain and criticize his father's kingdom Therein, he would make empty promises and say things like, if I was in charge, I guarantee you none of these things would be happening. And so he was handsome, he was cunning, and as you would suspect, he was very, very popular. Again, chapter 15 of 2 Samuel, verse 12. And so the conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's following kept increasing. Therefore, as his wickedness grows, his popularity grows, and again we read from 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 13, a messenger came and told David, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. And it was at that point, David says, we need to get out of here. Because apparently David knew his son all too well that whatever his son Absalom would put his mind to, he would succeed at. Therefore, David wisely but sadly has to leave the kingdom that God gave him. Okay, so just for a second, put yourself in David's shoes. One of your best and brightest and most beautiful of boys must now be counted as your enemy. That's verse 1, a foe. Tazar is the Hebrew word. It means an enemy. My son is my enemy. And as David is fleeing, then he's on the run. He's running from his son. And you can read on again. You find out that there's this horrible man named Shimei from the house of Saul. And you know how these things work. David is down. And so when a guy like David is down, people tend to jump on him even more. So Shimei from the house of Saul, trying to get some revenge for Saul. He follows David as he's running from the kingdom. He follows him for many miles. First, he throws rocks at David. Then he throws dirt at David. And then eventually he throws curses at David. Okay, so I put in my notes, oh my Shimei, you know, a rock throwing, dirt throwing, Curse, curse throwing son of a gun. That's Shimei. So, David then, in just what seems to be a mere moment, one moment he's on the throne, another moment he's on the run from his own son and from this cursing, rock and dirt throwing guy named Shimei. And so 2 Samuel records for us, then David and his followers arrived at their destination exhausted. Now keep that in mind, exhausted. And then it goes on to say, chapter 15, verse 30, but David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, his head was covered and he was barefoot and his followers were covering their heads and weeping as well. Therefore, in all honesty, that could have been the very time when David began to pen these words in Psalm 3. As again, in what must seem like a mere moment, one day on the throne, 
the next moment off it, and he's on the run, and he's being harassed. He's exhausted, he's spent, he's in tears, his head is covered, and apparently his son is behind it all. Now the question has to come, how in the world can this be? Right? How in the world can this be? And here's why we went down this two Samuel path. And so I want you to listen very, very closely to what I'm about to say. Sin has implications. The breaking of God's command, the breaking of God's moral law has implications. And when you and I sin, there are oftentimes, for loving reasons, implications that will follow. And here is why I say that. For David, his context here is precisely related to his sin with Bathsheba. And this is why I say this. Is why I say this okay? After David's sin with Bathsheba, another man's wife, a man who David would later on have murdered, okay, the word of God came to David through the prophet Nathan, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 11. Listen to what he said. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity to you. Before your very eyes, I'll take your wives and give them to one who's close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, i.e. David and Bathsheba, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Subsequently, God, speaking through the mouth of the prophet Nathan, foretelling what will happen as Absalom takes his father's concubine, does what the the prophet says, and that was part of the reason that his father has fled, or due to the fact that his father has fled the kingdom. And so what happens here is exactly what the man of God said would happen. Therefore, and here is the issue, the very context that David is dealing with. Think now. He's on the run from his son Absalom. Absalom is is rebelling in the kingdom. Absalom wants it all. The very context that David is dealing with is due largely to the fact of David's own sin with Bathsheba. I'm going to say that again. The very context. See, that's why that title was put there. That's why it's important that we don't miss these things. Why did this whole thing unfold? Well, the very context that David is dealing with is due largely to the fact of David's own sin. Now, loved one's sin then has very serious implications. And as Christians, we may and we must glory in the cross and which gives us free forgiveness. But we ought to stoop to the fact that while God in Christ will certainly forgive us, God may very well choose to discipline us in such a way that will, albeit in love, wound us very, very deeply, but yet still have loving purposes behind it. We we sang the hymn last week, which I sang all week long, How Firm a Foundation. For I will be with you, thy troubles to bless. Some of those troubles we have put on ourselves and sanctify thee in thy deepest distress. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design your dross to consume and your gold, your life, to refine. So we may not as believers stare sin in the face and say, it's okay, I can do this because of 1 John 8 and 9. I'll know I'll be forgiven. Yes, our Lord is faithful and just to forgive us. Yes, yes, yes. Hebrews 12 reminds us that He's so loving and He's so caring that He will choose, He will choose to discipline us. So we must all face the fact 
that when we choose to rebel against God, we oftentimes, at God's discretion, okay, this is between us and God, okay, not other people, this is between us and God, God may choose to have us live with some of the implications of our rebellion. Yes, our sin will be forgiven. Yes, it will not be held against us. And yes, one day we'll be removed from our sin completely and we thank God for it. However, let this be a means of self-humiliation if we're wise. Let this, means, let this be a means of magnifying God's grace in Jesus if we are Christian. And let this be just a flat-out warning to those of us who are not Christian at all. Because I want to say to you again, when we choose to rebel against God, His law, His commands... We will oftentimes live for loving reasons with those implications. Therefore, the main and plain reason why David is in this context of disloyalty and distress, he's on the run from his son, is because David, in the springtime when kings should go off to war in their boots, stayed at home in his slippers, and he saw her, and that was that. Okay, that's our first point. The context that David was in, distress, on the run, being chastised by God for his sin. Now, beloved, listen. Let the balm of Christ's spirit come and soothe your heart as the evil one might come to us all now and and tempt us to despair and just pound us with our past sins, reminding us of the guilt within and say, okay, that makes sense. The reason why X is happening to you and the reason why Y is happening to you is because you weren't a good parent or you did so many things wrong or you tanked on your Christian duties. Listen very carefully. Those things in degrees may or may not be true. And those things are between you and God. So if the evil one comes to you as a Christian and tells you you're a guilty mess, this is what I can tell you. You are not a guilty mess. God keeps no record of your wrong. The song, clean before God, not one blemish does he see in Christ. But you're also humble enough to acknowledge that which David faced, for loving reasons, we might also face. Because sin, sin has implications. And that takes us to our second point then, the cry that David makes. Now, you'll see that in verse 2, that there begins to be two voices or two cries that come out of this context that David is in. So you have one voice, the voice of the crowds, and the voice of discouragement. That's verse 2b. Many are saying God will not deliver him. Now again, think. You have here in David a man who had everything, and yet he determined he didn't have enough of everything, so he went out and found a pretty young lady committed a horrible sin with her, executed a horrible sin on her husband, the disciplines of God are unfolding, and everything seems lost. And yet David has the audacity, verse 3, to cry out to God. Now from the human side of this, or maybe we're going to say from the religious side of this, would I be too wrong to say that many would look at David in verse 3 as he cries out to God in confidence. Many would say to David, just who in the Dickens do you think you are? Right? You little sexual sinner. You made your bed. Now you're going to have to sleep in that bed alone. And so that's what you get in verse 2. The word on the street on David's future was one of absolute discouragement. Many are saying of me, God will not. And the Hebrew word there is Yeshua. It means deliver. It's a gospel word. God will not save David. God will not save David. In other words, 
Who does David think he is? David's situation is absolutely hopeless. He's done too much. It's all over. Who does he think he is? Well, let me tell you who he is. David is a child of God, and David is in covenant with God, and David is using and enjoying his covenant freedoms. The crowds would put David in a special category. The category of, okay, David, what you've done is so bad, and what's happened to you is so awful, God's not going to help you. God's not going to Yeshua you. He's not going to deliver you. He's not going to save you. However, the crowds, the crowds which in the Bible are oftentimes so slippery and deceitful, the crowds are like the Pharisees, right? Yes, God is loving. Yes, God's forgiving. Yes, God is gracious. But David, that's true for everybody else. But you, David, are in this kind of special category of God, and God's not coming to save you, David. Now think with me for a moment. Those of you that know the Gospels, and those of you who remember some of the words that Jesus said on the, or was said to Jesus on the cross, you will know that when the crowds were around the cross, one of the things they said to the innocent Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, as He hung there, is essentially... God will not deliver you. You trust God, let God save you. In other words, the crowds are saying, that ain't going to happen. Jesus, you're in such a special category, God is not coming to save you. Well, Jesus is in a special category, but not the one that the crowds think. Because just as God delivered Jesus Christ, and just as God will deliver David eventually, God has the power to deliver his servants as well. So I have to ask you, you look okay this morning, but do you ever feel this about yourself? You're you're in the dead of summer. The weight of your past sins are bearing down hard on you. You're a mess. Some of your children are a mess, young or adult. Your life is reeling due to the fact that, yeah, maybe you did have your slippers on when you should have had your boots on. And everything seems against you, and you may have trusted in your own wisdom and not God's. Or you might have believed wrong theology and set your way on it and now it has hurt you. And the evil one comes to you and all his evil minions are saying, God's not going to help you. God will not deliver you. You're in a special category. You're the only one. No hope for you. Okay. If that is you, I have a tremendous word for you. And let me just say this. If that is not you now, I can almost guarantee you that it might be you later. But I still have a tremendous word for you. It's the first word in the NIV of verse 3. Do you see it there? It's the word but. But, but, B-U-T, is one of my favorite Bible words. Romans 3, 20, and 21. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by keeping the law because through the law we become aware of our sin. But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known. Ephesians 2.4, we all live the same way, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. We were by nature objects of God's wrath, but because of God's great love, God who's rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. One more but, is that okay? 2 Corinthians 5.19, but God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's and women's sins against them. Okay. So what makes the word but so fantastic in verse 3 is that it's followed by theological truths about God. In other words, when the crowds in verse 2 were saying mindless discouragement, 
David faces his problem and he speaks and prays mindful theology. So what do we do in this? How do we deal with our issues and our sufferings? We face them head on and we let our difficulties make us run to God and not away from God. Now we're not told if David is emotional at this point at all, but what you can plainly see is that David is being theological here. So how do we get theological? How do we get theological like David? And by the way, you see that word Selah there? You see it repeated a few times? No one is really sure exactly what that word means, but the top three are this. Either the word Selah means crank it up, as in turn up the music, get it going quicker, or the word Selah means tighten it up, as in tighten up the strings of your instrument that you're playing the psalm with, or it means pause and think about what was just said. So whenever I see Selah, I see Blue's Clues, right? You remember Blue's Clues, you kids? So I get in my thinking chair, and I think, think, think. One voice is the voice of discouragement. They know nothing of God, nothing of God. The other voice is the voice of David, and it has exactness. It's filled with theological truth about God. And David just begins to flat out use his covenant privileges and begins to tell God things that need to be told about him. Now, believe it or not, for many people, this is so hard to do, namely myself. Because in the times of trial, for me personally, when circumstances come that are horrible, I do either three things, unfortunately. Either lock up, or tear up, or pass out. Okay? But we've been given a grace here. So we have to pay attention to what David's doing. David prays to God because David knows about God and he's telling God about God. God, you said. God, you said. Because there is a direct correlation between thinking properly and living rightly. And we're not going to think properly if we we know so little about God. And we need to keep this clear in our heads because we live in a time where emotions rule and emotions, pure emotions, can play havoc with our lives. That's why I tell you again and again, read your Bibles carefully, and yes, read those big, thick theological books. Why do I say that? Titus 1.9, Paul to the preacher Titus, encourage others by sound doctrine, by theology. So what does David know about God? Well, verse 3, he knows that God is a shield around him. So David knows God is a shield. He knows God is, verse 3b, the glorious one. He knows God is the one, verse 3c, who lifts up his head, which was the problem that we read of in 2 Samuel 15, because David was tired, he was discouraged, he's on the run, he's pelted by stones and dirt and curses, and his head is bowed down. But for those of you who were here last Sunday, what did we learn? What theology did we learn from Psalm 146, verse 8? The Lord lifts up Those who are bowed down. David is bowed down. The Lord will lift him up. Spurgeon to his congregation. Bow down low enough so that God can bless you. And so David here is magnificent in such that he clings to all his covenant privileges tightly. Tightly. So David was not looking for emotional surge here just to get him through the night. David thinks theologically and not emotionally, and he goes to God. And loved ones, listen carefully. 
if you go to Jesus Christ, and if you go to his church looking only for feelings, I can promise you that much of the time you're going to go away disappointed. Because when we come here, we all come here in many, many different conditions. And you may come in and if squeezed, you would say, you know, I really don't want to be here this morning. You know, I'd rather be out there. You know, the clock is ticking, summer's going, snow's coming. I need to be out there. You know, personally, I'm only a week and a half away from a vacation. Okay? So what do you think is overriding my mind or attempting to? Can I, can I tell you? So I have this lovely picture of me being in the airport in the cities. And, and I'm telling people, hey, Dr. Pepper for everybody. I'm buying people Dr. Pepper, talking to people because I'm, I'm just moments away from getting on the plane, going to Austin, Texas, and having a vacation. So that's what I'm dealing with this morning. And I don't think I'm unique in that. If people are going to be honest, I'm prepared to be honest. We struggle with those things. And so you might have come here this morning and you're saying, you know, this is not what I needed today. I didn't like any of the songs you sang. I haven't liked anything you've said so far. Okay? If that is you, I want you to listen to me closely. If you're waiting for a feeling, you might be waiting for a long, long time. But if you're waiting for the truth, then here you go. Because only God's truth can transform. It's only truth that sets us free. It's only truth that remains and stays because feelings, I promise you, will come and they will go. Question, what changed in David's context? Nothing yet. Verse 5, but the night has come and David needs rest. David needs to sleep. And here the Bible becomes a very, very practical book. He's been running He's been harassed. His sin and his son are the cause of these things. Night has fallen and David is not superhuman. The day's troubles are hard on him and David knows he needs his rest. Okay? David knows his God. David knows his God is a gracious God. He knows our frailty. And he knows that the days for some of us of playing super Christian should be far, far behind us all. Because none of us in this room, beginning with myself, is that fantastic. And don't kid yourself to the fact that sleep deprivation in the modern world ranks consistently high on the causes of so many of our human ailments. Okay, back to David. Oh God, before I lay me down to sleep, I know this, verse 3, I know you're my shield. I know you're the defender. You're the ancients of days, pavilioned, are surrounded in splendor and girded with praise. Verse 4, God, I know that we're in covenant together so I can cry aloud. And God, I will know, I know that you will answer me. Therefore, for those of us who have friends, we'll call them Mr. and Mrs. Smarty Pants. And they tell us, and if you want, really, if you want God to really, really hear you, so God can really, really answer you, then you must press in, you know, whatever that means. Tell them in a very kind way to pipe down. Tell them, my Savior, my friend, my King Jesus Christ has opened wide the doors of the halls of my Father. And my Father tells me to come to His throne as often as I must and come big with confidence, come big with boldness, for His throne is a throne of grace. David probably said something like this. I am coming to a king. Large petitions may I bring. For his grace and power is such that none can ever ask too much. And that's what David is doing. 
And so he understands that this whole enterprise is of grace because you'll remember David's sin was part of the circumstance that made Psalm 3 be written, but, and there's that word again, but God's grace is what made this whole psalm to be written down as it did. Verse 5b, I awake again because the Lord sustains me. So some of us might have trouble falling to sleep from time to time. But do you ever wonder why you just don't stay asleep? Do you ever wonder how you get up? I mean, it's automatically we understand, but is it really? How do you get up? Well, the motor neurons, which have subsided from your level two deep sleep, begin to emulate. No. No. Verse 5b. I awake again because God said I could. Because the Lord sustains me. Samach is the Hebrew word. And the word literally means lays beside me. So that's a word picture of God lying next to to David, this is so beautiful, God essentially saying to David, David, get up. Get up. And yes, God may give him a little, you know, one of those things. But David is with God. And David will wake up. Because God said. That's the only reason why you and I get up. I was thinking about my wife, the poor thing. I don't think she slept in the 23 years we've been married. 4.30 in the morning. Nicole, are you awake? (laughs) Pipe down. Depression experts tell us that one of the side effects of depression is that people want to stay in bed and they don't want to get up and they don't want to go out. If that's you, Child of God, get up, wake up, and go out. Because God said you could. The context David is in is due much because of his own sin. The cry that David makes is because he knows his God well. He uses his covenant privileges extremely well. Last point, the blessing that David gives. So the rewards from God, as David thinks rightly about him, are beautiful right? Verse 6, he makes this confident assurance. He trusts God despite appearances. 2 Corinthians 5, what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. 2 Corinthians 4, actually, right? Tens of thousands of people are around me. So what? God is here. I will not fear. So before David lays down to sleep, he takes almost word for word Numbers chapter 10, verses 35 and 36, which was said every time the Ark of the Covenant was moved. So any time the Ark of the Covenant was moved, they cry out, verse 7, Arise, O Lord, deliver us, O my God, and so on. And that's what David is saying. Protect us, O God, because verse 8, you're the only one God who can save me. Right? Verse 8a, from the Lord comes deliverance. So David is humble enough to recognize that which modern man has so much trouble recognizing, that deliverance, that salvation, any life-changing change, any deliverance from any habitual habit, any captives that need to be set free, salvation can only come from the Lord. That's what David's saying. Every deliverance, every salvation is from and only from the Lord. 
So I've been reading for the past month about revivals. I'm not through reading, but I've been reading. And what I've come up with so far is at least this. One of the chief ways that revival comes is God answering the, God's people answering the call of God to just get out of God's way. Get out of God's way. Why? Why is that true? True, because every deliverance, every salvation is from and only from the Lord. And because David knows that only God brings deliverance and not a man or not a woman, and because David belongs to God, and because David knows God cares about people, he ends his night, even in the midst of all his troubles. This might have been the hardest day and night in the, in the whole life of David. He ends his night, verse 8b, God, may your blessing be on your people. What a way to go to sleep. What a way to go to sleep. David is a good king. He's a thoughtful man. He thinks about those entrusted to his care, even in his troubles. May the Lord's blessing be upon your people. So David's sin caused all this. God's truth is a way out of this. And God's power is the only thing that will eventually make it all go away. And it will go away. So, here we are. It's 11.33. This is about, what, eight or nine hours before some of your bedtimes. I have something to say to you before you go to bed. Good night. Sleep tight. And may the Lord's blessing, may the Lord's blessing be upon you all. Thank you for your attention. Let's bow together and pray. Our God and Father, you are a gracious God. How we love the gospel this morning. The gospel that corners us and tells us of our sin is the same gospel who forgives us and saves us and delivers us so that we might have an eternally right relationship with the only God there is, our Father in heaven. And so, Father, we thank you that in the story of David, we see humanness as it is, raw, unfettered, and yet at the same time, we see the covenant, specifically for us, this new covenant. And we would ask, Father, for Jesus' sake, that we would go big continually with our gospel privileges, with our covenant privileges. Because what the world needs most is not to only hear about their sin. If we do that, we tell them half of what they need to know, and that's not enough. But what the world needs to know is there is a Savior, Jesus, who has saved us from it, and He can save them as well. Now, may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be on all here this morning in Christ. For Jesus' sake, amen.